good evening everybody welcome back to the Mythgard Academy this is session number 20 on Inferno and uh, I am delighted to be back with you guys today we had a big announcement which I made last night uh, I don't know <clears throat> how many of you um, have uh, heard the news uh, yet or not but I wanted to reiterate the announcement in case you hadn't um, we have made the official decision that we are going to make Mythmoot a hybrid event we are in fact going to go um, uh, going to do an in-person component uh, to Mythmoot we're going to open the doors and get together as a group for everybody who can now keep in mind we are going to make a, a, a completely combined hybrid event. Um, so we're going to be working very hard to integrate the experience for folks who can be there and will only be participating digitally, uh, uh, can't be there and will be participating digitally, and those who can be there. Um, uh, so that's going to be, that's sort of the fun adventure for this year. Uh, so I'm actually kind of looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun uh, to do. But... Um, but anyway, we are definitely uh, getting together. And yes, David, I did not, uh, I did not get knocked out. I had my first vaccine yesterday, my first shot yesterday. So uh, um, uh, I was uh, not positive if it was going to affect me uh, in last night's class, but it didn't. I was, I was fine. It's all good. Um, so anyway, we are definitely. Um, I'm definitely excited about Mythmoot this year. Uh, so Mythmoot 8, of course, I wanted to recommend everybody to uh, look out for the um, uh, the call for presentations. Uh, yeah, the call for papers and presentations at Mythmoot. Uh, go to uh, signumuniversity.org slash Mythmoot and you can find our call for papers there. Uh, and uh, we, we've been receiving many enthusiastic submissions uh, this year, so that's been really exciting. Um, and uh, uh, we're uh, we're we're looking for uh, uh, we're we're definitely interested uh, to see uh, to see people's uh, submissions. So anyway, yes, Arthur, I'm not sure exactly when you'll hear back, but soon. I know they're going to be talking about that soon. So I definitely wanted to uh, wanted to recommend that again. Um, anyway, so just wanted to repeat the big news uh, that um, uh, we're definitely moving forward. I'm. I'm really excited. Uh, I'm uh, I am just delighted um, to be starting things up, and of course, this means we. Are, I'm fully planning to return to at least our U.S.-based regional moots next year too. So we're going to start our regional moot cycle again. Uh, we'll be doing. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we're if you know how soon international travel is going to be. You know, a reasonable thing again. Um, I'm hoping sooner rather than later, but um, but not knowing, you know, uh, we're, I'm not making definite plans. I really am hoping we can do, you know, we had several moots planned. We had Dragon Moot in Wales planned. We had Nippon Moot in Japan planned. Um, we were working on Maple Moot in Toronto. Those are all things that had to be canceled over this last year. I would love to start those up again. But at the very least, we are looking to get back into our regular uh, moots again, our regular domestic moots again. So anyway, that's, um, uh, definitely something that I am very excited about. Wanted to make sure, uh, that, uh, uh, that you guys were aware of. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is some, some, uh, to warn you, cause 
Okay, we're not exactly at the end of Inferno yet. We still have a few weeks to go. So, uh, you know, we, we still have a good month. Um, it'll probably be like the beginning of May when we're done with Inferno, I think, because I'm going to be I'm not going to be here the last week of uh, of April. Um, so I'm going to be missing the last week. So I got three sessions in April. And like after tonight, am I going to be done in three sessions? No, I don't think so. So it'll probably be um, a session or two in the beginning of May. But... But here's the thing. What's coming next? Because we have had now for the second year in a row, with, it never happened before, but it's now happened twice in a row, um, we have had uh, one of our very generous donors request um, the, uh, the, the, the donor perk that comes uh, when you make a very generous $5,000 donation, which is that you get to name your own session. We, we will do, uh, it's, a, it's a perk that I attach to $5,000 donations. We'll do a Mythgard Academy uh, discussion of the book of your choice. You'll remember that we did a discussion of Paralandra, not Paralandra, Out of the Silent Planet last year. Um, and, uh, that was, uh, that was sort of invoked in that same way this year, we are going to be doing the moon is a harsh mistress by Robert Heinlein. Uh, some, uh, some awesome old school science fiction action here. Um, uh, so the moon is a harsh mistress by Heinlein will be our next book after we finish Inferno. Um, I'm looking to start, to start that right off at Arthur. I knew you would be excited about that. Uh, <laughs> um, we're gonna, um, we're gonna, we're gonna start that right after we do Inferno. Then there's going to be an interesting question to be had because of course, normally, uh, we would go some kind of squeezing in the extra session. Um, but of course, then normally we would be going back uh, to Tolkien. And of course, we have next, I'm looking up at my new, uh, my new book, I, you know, renovating, as I say, my bookshelves are in a different place now. Um, normally, we would be going to the War of the Jewels. That was what was scheduled next. But there's that new book coming out, right? The Nature of Middle-Earth. Um, and I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to read through that. And I'm, I was kind of thinking, maybe we, uh, maybe we deviate. Maybe we uh, jump in and do that, like as soon as it's released. Wouldn't that be fun? Like as soon as that gets released, we start going through it week by week. Um, I'm kind of thinking that would be fun. So what we're probably going to do is do a, a voting pool among all of our uh, donors to see if you guys are, are down with that idea, um, breaking the pattern that we've been doing and, and jumping into um, a... Um, an, so, yeah, David says, I can't believe your completionism will allow such heresy. Well, look, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're going to get back to it, right? We've got the War of the Jewels and the Peoples of Middle-Earth, Middle but um, I am not convinced that there is sufficient reason to wait until after we've done the last two volumes to do the, like, to, uh, to balance, to counterbalance, like, doing this fresh book right when it's new and newly released, like, whew. And I've heard some, like, steamy things about it. You know, like, I've heard rumors. Um, I was, um, I was doing a, um, I was doing a, a, an interview with a Tolkien YouTube channel based in Brazil. And I was talking to one of the hosts was the guy who's actually doing the Portuguese translation of uh, uh, of the nature of Middle Earth. And so he, he didn't like spill too many beans, but he was telling me that um, um, he was telling me that 
there's some uh, there's some surprising things in there, and I believe it. So anyway, I we're uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. So we'll see. I say we'll, we'll, we'll probably do a voting thing. Uh, we'll probably have, rather than like doing an open vote, like for open nominations and stuff, there'll probably be like a couple specific propositions that we'll ask you guys to vote on whether we should, um, uh, you know, whether we, you know, like whether we should do a particular, um, you know, what you guys think on, 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 you know, sort of for our next uh, couple books here. And then we'll, uh, after that one, we'll get back to, uh, voting in general, but it just seemed like a kind of exciting opportunity. I mean, the other there there have been other Tolkien books, of course, that have been released while we've been carrying on here in the Mythgard Academy, right? I mean, while we've been doing this, the Baron and Luthien book was released, the Fall of Gondolin book was released, but but most of those they didn't contain like new stuff. Right. I mean, like we'd already discussed in the Mythgard Academy itself, almost all the texts that are in those volumes. Right. So, you know, I, I mean, it's not that there's nothing cool in those, but um, but it wasn't the same. It was not the same situation. Right. This this is um, this is interesting. This is different. So new uh, new fun stuff. We'll see. Anyway, so I just, you know, brainstorming, uh, you know, we'll 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 we'll, we'll see what. We'll see what the people say, uh, and we'll uh, uh, we'll let you know. So we'll be in touch soon about the about the voting for that. Anyway, all right. Enough major announcements. Let's uh, let's get back to Inferno here and see if we can't uh, can't get through Cantos twenty six and twenty seven today. I don't know. We're going to be dealing with folks in you know wreathed in flame all evening tonight. We're done with snakes. That's the th- good. Th- news is that we're done with snakes but um on to fire all right it grieved me then and grieves me and now grieves me again when i direct my mind to what i saw and more than usual i curb my talent that it not run where virtue does not guide so that if my kind star or something better has given me that gift i not abuse it As many as the fireflies, the peasant, while resting on a hillside in the season when he who lights the world least hides his face, just when the fly gives way to the mosquito, sees glimmering below, down in the valley, there where perhaps he gathers grapes and tills, so many were the flames that glittered in the eighth abyss, I made this out as soon as I had come to where one sees the bottom. Whoa. Okay. That's quite a sentence. Right, it's two sentences, I know, but still, that's um, that's a lot of syntax. Let's do it again. First, the first sentence is about himself, and the second sentence is about what he's describing. Right? It grieved me then, and now grieves me again when I direct my mind to what I saw, and more than usual, I curb my talent that it not run where virtue does not guide. So that, if my kind star or something better has given me that gift, I not abuse it. Okay, so he was grieved when he saw whatever it is that he hasn't described yet. And now that he's remembering what he saw that he hasn't described yet, he experiences grief a second time when he's directing his mind to what he saw at that point. 
And so he's decided to curb his talent more than he usually does. So what is going to follow is going to be an unusually, what, like an unusually terse and uh, um, not very elaborate description. I, I, I think we can all agree to express our gratitude towards Dante uh, for that curbing, as who knows what this would have looked like had he not curbed his talent. Um, why is he curbing his talent? So that it not run where virtue does not guide. So that if my kind star or something better has given me that gift, his talent, I, I assume, the gift of poetical expression, I not abuse it. Okay, so he's curbing his talent so that he doesn't abuse it. Because he wouldn't want to abuse his talent. Naturally. Okay, he doesn't want to abuse his talent. That's why he's curbing it more than usual. Because he was grieved. No, it doesn't say because. Fact. It grieved him then and it grieves him now. And so he was grieved, point one. Point two, I'm going to curb my talent more than usual. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this toned down because I don't want my talent to run where virtue does not guide. So the danger here is what, like, what's the point? What would the abuse of, of what abuse of his, of his talent does he appear to be guarding here where that it not run where virtue does not guide okay um he acknowledges he's been given his talent is a gift given to him by either his kind star that is presumably a kind star not meaning the star that was kind to me but his natural star the star under which he was born his natal star or something better um Okay. Sure. It would be an abuse to allow his talent to run where virtue does not guide. Now, I curb my talent, and I believe that the metaphor there is to, like, rein in his talent, right? He's not going to give his talent its head. He's going to remain firmly in, in hold of the reins, right? Um, so as to not let his talent take him to where virtue does not guide. That would be the abuse in question. Okay. Fine. I guess. <laughs> Except if this is curbing, I don't know what non-curbing looks like. As many as the fireflies, the peasant, while resting on a hillside in the season when he who lights the world least hides his face. What are we talking about? So, while resting on a... What's... Okay. He who lights the world. The sun. Okay. Um, when the season when he who lights the world least hides his face... Summertime. Okay. Summertime. 
The peasant, while resting on a hillside in summertime... Right. Okay. As many as the fireflies, the summertime hillside resting peasant, just when the fly gives way to the mosquito, sees glimmering below, down in the valley, there where perhaps he gathers grapes and tills, so many were the flames that glittered in the eighth abyss. Okay. As many as the flies the peasant sees glimmering below down in the valley. So many were the flames that glittered in the eighth abyss. Okay. He, Dante, looking down is like the peasant looking down in summertime at just when the fly gives way to the mosquito. <laughs> Which, by the way, um, is a charming way to describe dusk, right? Isn't it? When the fly gives way to the mosquito. I mean, I think a lot of us can relate to that. Um, all right. You see what I'm doing here, right? The first thing that I'm doing is making sure we're understanding it. Because you remember, that's easy. it's an easy mistake to make. Like, these extremely tangled similes, like syntactically tangled similes, are really easy to make mistakes about. Such that, remember, like, wait, I was making a mistake about, the, who is it who corrected me? I forget. Um, I'm already forgetting. Um, somebody was correcting me that, when we're, I was looking at that long hoarfrost simile that he was making, right? And I was, like, making a mistake as to, like, who was supposed to be which, right? It's really easy to make mistakes if you don't try to keep everything straight. So the literal level of this simile is, I looked down into the eighth abyss, and I saw as many flames glittering down there as a peasant looking into a valley at dusk in summertime sees fireflies glinting in the valley. Okay. So that's um, uh, the simple comparison that he's making. But obviously there's much more here than just the simple comparison, right? All of this, the indirection of his language, as we you know, talked about this before, um, the indirection of his language all pushes us in particular ways. Like, each piece of indirection pushes us in different ways. No, I'm not saying, like, contradictory ways, but, like, they're all important. They all add up to the overall poetic effect that he is getting at here, right? Um, first, having grasped the visual image that he is attempting to paint through this simile, it is interesting that he's comparing these flames, the flames glittering in the eighth abyss, to fireflies on a peaceful summer evening in the first place. Right? Um, especially given that he starts off talking about grief. It grieved me then and now grieves me again. 
right? So interesting. You've set us up for grief, right? You've set us up for, um, you know, pathos here. And then you paint this beautiful, peaceful scene. Okay, but more. More. I mean, it, it is at least very visibly evocative, right? Imagine seeing a valley glimmering with fireflies, right? The flashing of the little light, you know, the flash, flashing specks of light all over the valley as you're looking down from a hill. Um, it does really convey a powerful sense of these uh, flames glittering in the bottom of the abyss. Although you'll notice specifically he is comparing not the, I guess not say like, the shade is the same. He's not saying the light is the same. He's saying the number is the same. So many were the flames. He didn't say they were of the same kind. He didn't say they're of the same color, right? Um, but of course, he has gone very far out of his way to invite us to imagine this, right? So why are we supposed to be juxtaposing this particular peasant scene with you know, the flames in the eighth pouch. But there's more. Arthur, exactly as you say, why specifically a peasant? Um, couldn't it be anybody? Well, Arthur, I would say the reason it's a peasant, I think we pick up on that later on, right? I think there are two things that pick up on that. First and primarily, down in the valley, there where perhaps he gathers grapes and tills. So what he's, what he's evoking in particular is a man looking down into the valley where he works, right? So he is seeing from afar a place, what, like that he's familiar with? His home place, right? His place of work. And he's seeing that from a different angle, right? a very different angle than he normally sees it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Farmers. Uh, kit. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, but now I said there were two reasons that I thought, I thought why the peasant was relevant. The other, I think, potentially, is just where the fly gives way to the mosquito. Um, and although, Arthur, I don't think that it's true that um, a nobleman doesn't necessarily notice flies or mosquitoes. Um, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they did much more back then than they would now. But they're also not like out working in the middle of the fields, right? They, they, they probably still did a good deal less swatting of flies and mosquitoes while gathering grapes and tilling. Right, like this peasant did. So um, the way in which the time of day is characterized, and this is, of course, the next point that I wanted to get to, right? The whole just when the fly gives way to the mosquito, which has got to be the least romantic way to describe dusk I've ever heard in my life, right? Um, and it's a very pragmatic way of marking it, right? And uh, I can't help but say a very pessimistic way, right? Um, oh, yes, the gloaming, 
Sure. Right. Yeah. I know just the time you mean. That time when you stop swatting flies and you start swatting mosquitoes. Yeah. I, I, I'm all about that. Right. Um, it's it's a pre- peculiar way of looking at this, right? And puts us in a particular frame of mind, which again, I can't help but connect to the gathering grapes and tilling, right? To the, to the manual labor that is done down in the valley where this is happening. One effect of this, of course, potentially, seems to me to be highlighting the comparative piece of the scene, right? Remote from a distance, you're not down amidst the. You know, presumably, there there are both flies and mosquitoes still lurking around, right, right at the transition time. But you're not down among them, right? Um, you're up on the top of the hill, and you're looking down, and you're seeing this beautiful, peaceful, glimmering valley um, at dusk in the summertime. So it's going to be a warm evening, right? And there again, we have another piece of. Uh, um, uh, we, we have another piece of indirection. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, when he who lights the world least hides his face, right? That, uh, again, I can't help but call this a somewhat pessimistic indirection, right? The sun hides his face most of the... Uh, the sun is hiding from us most of the time, but he hides from us least in the summertime. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could say that. Lots of ways in which people have said that kind of thing, right? Like the, uh, you know, you could just as well turn that around very easily, turn that around. In fact, even more naturally, I would, I would even say, turn that around and say, um, you know, in the season when he who lights the world dwells most among us or something like that, right? You could, you could say it positively, but instead he says it negatively. Um, when he is, when he is avoiding us least, yeah, that's that's summer for you. Um, when you when when the moon disses you or when the sun disses you less often than he does during the other seasons, um, yeah, yeah, um, yes. Now, David, that's a really interesting point. Um, he, the light of the world can also refer to Jesus, and that is true. Um, and the connection between Jesus and the sun, um, of course, English poets especially love that particular, um, because it's a pun in English, um, uh, the light of the risen sun, for instance, is a very favorite uh, kind of pun uh, for um, uh, Christian English religious poets. But anyway, um, but yes, you're right. He who lights the world is a way, in uh, an indirect way, to refer to Jesus as well. And David, of course, we should remember where we are, which is hell, right? Um, uh, where he who lights the world in either sense does not show his face. Did once, right? Doesn't again. Um, so, yeah, I think that could be relevant. Um, so where do we go with it? What do we do with this as a whole? P. 
peace contrasted to labor, but all of these negative, and I mean negative with the sun, I mean negative, not bad. I mean, as opposed to like an absence, as opposed to a presence. Um, and he's positioning himself, he's sort of implicitly comparing himself, he's paralleling himself to the peasant, the laboring fly and mosquitoes swatting or whether or not they swat, I'm not sure, Carrie. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, he's putting himself in that position. And it's, I can't, I can't avoid the conclusion that he's taking, he's describing a scene which should be horrifying and grief-inducing, as he suggests in the first line, and he's first comparing it with a beautiful, lovely, peaceful, bucolic scene. But then he's making the peaceful, lovely, bucolic scene kind of awful, right? With his flies and mosquitoes and least hides his face and, um, you know, with the memory of, of the laboring peasant down in that same valley. Um... And if the peasant, if the firefly valley the peasant is looking down into is his valley, the valley where he labors, right? Where he does his work. What is Dante suggesting about himself and the eighth pouch of the Melobolgia? And remember, didn't he just say he was going to curb his talent? That's his work, right? The peasant with his grape-gathering and tilling. The peasant has his grape-gathering and tilling. Dante has his poetry, right? That's his job. Describing this stuff is kind of his job. And he just said he's going to curb his talent. And he's looking down and then compares himself to the guy who's looking down into the field where his work is done, right? In this incredibly elaborate and... um remarkably complicated simile here. Um, and yes, Stephen, I agree. I made this out as soon as I came to where one sees the bottom. So yes, I do think it means the top of the arch looking down. I think. It means he's not seeing it from the edge. Right? He's... he's the flames that he's talked about are down on the bottom, on the floor of the pouch. So yeah, I guess, I guess he's saying, <coughs> sorry, I guess he's saying, um, the middle of the arch, or up on the arch anyway, presumably. Um, I'm just saying, I'm calling his bluff on the talent curbing thing. I am. I just, I don't, this doesn't, um, if, um, if he's curbing, I just, yeah, I, 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 um, I call baloney on the talent curbing. Now we're going to explain what he's talking about with yet another simile. 
even as he who was avenged by bears saw as it left Elijah's chariot, its horses rearing, rising right to heaven, when he could not keep track of it except by watching one lone flame in its ascent, just like a little cloud that climbs on high, so through the gullet of that ditch each flame must make its way. No flame displays its prey, though every flame has carried off a sinner. Okay, so this uh, this simile gets me even more. Okay, this uh, simile is a Bible quiz. If you don't know it, you won't know it, but it's not a hard one. He spells it out pretty clearly. Um, he's talking about the prophet Elijah, right? And Elijah is extremely famous. He did many very famous, he take, took part in many famous stories. But um, the story that is being explicitly alluded to here was... Uh, Elijah being born up into heaven on a fiery chariot. Elijah is super famous because he's one of two people in the entire Old Testament who went straight to heaven without dying first. The serious Bible quiz is, who's the other guy? Elijah's the easy one. Who's the other guy? Enoch. Very good. Very good. Vora and Sarah and William. Yes. Enoch is the other guy. Um, uh, Enoch, uh, he's in, he's very briefly mentioned in Genesis 5. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's it. Enoch, who walked with God and was not. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, so anyhow, yeah. So the two of them went straight to heaven without dying. That was important flaming chariot born off into heaven and Elisha, his kind of apprentice prophet, uh, who was his companion at the time, um, watched him, right? Uh, saw as it left Elijah's chariot. And of course, there's the famous story about Elisha being avenged by bears. Um, the story so rarely um, covered in Sunday school flannel graphs, uh, the story of when the prophet Elisha goes to a town and uh, some of the children of the town mock his bald head uh, and a bunch of she-bears emerge out of the woods and maul the, uh, the, <laughs> the children who mocked him. Um, like I said, it's it's rarely... I've always wanted to see a good Sunday school... a, a good, like, a, a Sunday school room that had that painted as a mural. You know, I've, I've, I've never seen that. Um... But, um, yeah, so that was, that was, that was, uh, that was, uh, uh, Elisha or Elisha. I think I always have pronounced that name wrong. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, that was, uh, Elisha avenged by bears. Anyway, so, um, uh, this one isn't hard to follow. Like the other one we had to really piece together, right? Um, uh, even as he who was avenged by bears saw as it left Elijah's chariot, its horses rearing, rising right to heaven, when he could not keep track of it except by watching one lone flame in its ascent, just like a little cloud that climbs on high. It's a fairly clear description of what he's seeing, right? What Elisha was seeing as the chariot goes up into heaven, bearing Elijah with it, right? It's not that the comparison is hard to understand. It's that the, the application is kind of odd, 
So, through the gullet of that ditch, each flame must, must, must make its way. No flame displays its prey, though every flame has carried off a sinner. So, just like Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, who was taken alive into heaven on a flaming chariot, just like Elijah in his flaming chariot, are the sinners in flames in this... Isn't it kind of the opposite? Right? I mean, it's just, doesn't it? It's weird. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? I think that's weird. Um, why are we comparing? The, I mean, yes, there's flame involved, right? And, okay, when Elijah's flaming chariot was distant, when he could not keep track of it, when, when all he could see was like a flame in the distance of the sky, and he knew Elijah was there inside the flame, it was... Sure, a little bit like what he's describing here, these individual large flames with people inside them, each one with a person inside. Yes, but it's not very like Elijah, is it? I mean, again, it's kind of the opposite um, of Elijah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, Arthur, I, I, sorry, I, I, I'm not trying to confuse. Yes, uh, Elisha is the one who's on the ground. Elijah is the one who's in the chariot. Um, yeah, and Elisha was the one who was avenged by... I'm sorry if I misspoke and created any confusion earlier on. Um, so, um, anyway. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't... <laughs> I don't know why we're invoking Elijah's chariot, the fiery chariot, the fiery chariot of swing low, sweet chariot fame. Yes, that chariot. Um, <laughs> yet David says that Dante is quite deliberately pointed to his poetic gifts and then let them run amok. Must say something about who's being punished here. I, David, I kind of have to draw that same conclusion, right? I mean, it almost seems... It almost seems like um, irony, right? I mean, I, I don't think it's supposed to be funny. It's not quite that far. But it seems almost like that, right? I stood upon the bridge and leaned straight out to sea. So see, Stephen, I think he probably is somewhere close to the apex. And leaned straight out to sea. And if I had not gripped a rock, I should have fallen off without a push. Once again, like, he, he's, just, he's almost fallen into this circle, right? Again, Dante seems to connect himself. Again, he is like the peasant looking down into the valley, which is his field of work, right? Um... He is looking at the flames. So he's putting himself in the position of Elisha, the prophet, right? Who is looking up at Elijah flying away. And he's like Elisha, except instead of looking up, he's looking down, right? So Elisha was following in the footsteps of Elijah, right? In fact, the first thing that Elijah has his mantle um, that he always wore. And he drops his mantle to the ground when he gets on the fiery chariot and takes off. And Elisha takes up the mantle. of That's where that expression comes from, by the way. Um, uh, he takes up the mantle of Elijah uh, and wears the mantle of Elijah thereafter. Um, 
now he's paralleling himself to Elisha watching Elijah, except instead of one prophet watching the spiritual progress towards heaven of another prophet, Dante is looking at the sinners enwreathed in flames. He's not looking up, he's looking down. Yes, I mean, so David, yes, this kind of seems to me... Um, wait, what was that expression he used, David? Um, uh, run where virtue does not guide. Yeah, exactly. He wouldn't want to run where virtue does not guide. Is that what he's afraid of? Is this where virtue would not guide? Um, is this, um, you know, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, he is. He's leaning out towards the lights, right? And he he should have fallen off um, without a push if he hadn't gripped a rock, right? I mean, he was like this close to falling right in with those guys. My guide, who noted how intent I was, told me, within those fires there are souls. Each one is swathed in that which scorches him. Okay. So each one is enwreathed in flame and the flame is burning him. Now, We've, so we've seen Dante rather elaborately connect himself and even his talent to um, uh, uh, to the sinners uh, in this uh, on this field in this valley, right? Yeah, Stephen. Ah, see now you're getting it, Stephen. Stephen says uh, he grasps onto a rock or a capital R rock. The reason he's not condemned to hell. Um, yes. Allegorically speaking, what is the rock that he gripped that prevented him from falling? Right? Um, yes. Jesus, Beatrice, and then Jesus, right? Uh, you know, on two different levels of allegory. Virgil and Jesus. Yeah. There are any number of ways uh, in which we, which we could... Uh, which we could go with that. But that's exactly, that's just how you do allegorical reading. Um, okay, who's here? My master, I replied. On hearing you, I am more sure, but I'd already thought that it was so. I had meant, and I had meant to ask, who is within the flame that comes so twinned above that it would seem to rise out of the pyre Eteocles shared with his brother? He answered me. Within that flame, Ulysses and Diomedes suffer. They who went as one to rage now share one punishment. And there, together in their flame, they grieve over the horse's fraud that caused a breach, the gate that let Rome's noble seed escape. There they regret the guile that makes the dead, uh, the dead Diademia still lament Achilles. And there, for the Palladium, they pay. Okay. Okay. Um, right. So, and Arthur, you are very right to be uh, speculating about what exactly is the sin here. What did the people in this particular pouch do? Um, a very logical question. Arthur is speculating. It, it could be using far too complicated allegories, or it could be mocking bald people. Yeah. Yeah, both very viable options. We'll have to see. In fact, um, I'll be really interested to see what uh, what you guys think uh, of this because I'm not altogether sure. But anyway, 
I'm often not altogether sure. I, there's been a bunch of times I'm, I've been unsure, especially here in the Malabolgia. Um, but anyway, let's um, come back to Ulysses here. Remember my caution from last time. If you, if you know your Homer, forget it. This is not a Homer quiz, right? If you've read Homer before, then don't forget that you've done something Dante never did. So uh, do not think about Odysseus. Do not think about the Odyssey at all, in fact. Um, what you should be thinking of is the Aeneid and the Latin tradition of Ulysses and the Trojan War. Um, so notice, so it's Ulysses and Diomedes, two Greek heroes of the Trojan War. Um, there, together in their flame, they grieve over the horse's fraud that caused a breach. So the ploy of the Trojan horse is explicitly pointed to as one of the... It's, that, that was one of their sins, right? They were both involved. <laughs> That's literally true. They were both involved. They were inside the horse. Um, um, okay, so they were both... Inside the Trojan horse, um, they caused a breach. A breach. A breach in the walls. Of course, that was the point of the Trojan horse, was for it to cause a breach in the walls. Um, but of course, it was also a breach. Uh, a breach of... I mean, it was a deception, right? It was a breach of... of, of courtesy, a breach of hospitality. Um, it was, um, it was a breach. It was a breach. Um, and notice how he immediately turns it. What did they accomplish? What did they accomplish by breaching the gates of Troy? What did they accomplish? Not the downfall of Troy. That's not what they accomplished. What they accomplished was letting Rome's noble seed escape. Right. They permitted Aeneas and his family to leave. Um, that's what they accomplished by breaching the gate. Right. Um, ultimately, big picture, that's what matters. And so we see that the malice of Ulysses and Diomedes was ultimately thwarted right, by the larger plans of providence, um, that through their actions, Rome was brought about. Right. So there we go. Um, yeah, Jocelyn, absolutely. Uh, uh, well, Dante's a Troy lover in the sense that, uh, I mean, he's on the side of Troy because Virgil, right? Um, and it's it's one of the things, it's one of the things that's so strange about medieval the medieval tradition to people who know their classics well, right? Because people who know both the Greeks and the Latins, right? If you've read Virgil and Homer, then most people who read Virgil, I, I, I mean, most, oh, I mean, careful with that. Many modern readers I have talked to who read them both, um, you know, I, I very rarely, a couple times, but I have very rarely met modern folks who have read both the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid and prefer the Aeneid, 
right? Most everybody that I, most most modern people that I know prefer Homer to Virgil, um, and often think quite slightingly of Virgil. In contrast, I that's what I that's what I always used to hear um, when I used to teach uh, a, a class in which we read them all three. Um, everyone's like, you know, man, like. This uh, this Aeneid thing is just like a cheap, cop, you know, a cheap ripoff. It's a it's a parody, right? Um, except it isn't funny. Um, yeah, yeah. It, so seeing the um, the kind of secondary place in 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 most modern re- to most modern readers, Virgil has a distinctly secondary place to Homer. Um, so it makes it really hard to wrap your brain around the medieval perspective, which is 100% pro-Aeneid because they'd never even read Homer, right? So um, their entire... It's hard for us even to imagine a world in which you know the Aeneid backwards and forwards and you've never read Homer in your life, right? I mean, that's just... There are very, very few modern people who have ever been in that position before. Um, So it's um, strange. It's strange. Um, but, um, Michael says that was dogma in my freshman classics class. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I, I quite like, um, I quite like the Aeneid. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to do the Aeneid. I know exactly, sorry, I'm glancing over at my bookshelf again. I know exactly the translation of the Aeneid I would do. Um, but, um, anyhow, um, I, uh, it's weird. It's hard to understand. So yes, is he pro-Troy? Yeah, he's pro-Troy. But again, everyone in the Middle Ages was systemically pro-Troy. Um, I mean, there wasn't even another way to be, really. Um, the the Greek side had no defenders. <laughs> Basically, it was unanimous opinion in the Middle Ages. Um, but um, uh, yeah. Oh, Joss, I would absolutely do any of the three. I think it would be fun to do uh, to do the Iliad, the the Aeneid, or the Odyssey, or all three of them someday. Um, that would be fun. Um, Aaron asks, having not read the Aeneid, is the fall of Troy covered in detail? Yes. Um, yes, it is, in a sense. It is... Um, it is recalled, but it's recalled in flashback. The story of the Aeneid begins after the fall of Troy. Aeneas is already on the road. Um, but it soon comes, he soon comes to a place where he's at, in a peaceful surroundings. And while he's there, he recounts the story of the fall of Troy. Um, so we get quite a bit of detail about the fall of Troy um, from his account, from his story. Um, but it's um, he does what he does not do. I think the reason I'm pausing, Aaron, when I'm saying that, the reason I'm qualifying it is that it was never quite as much as I wanted. Um, the the Iliad stops well short, right? Um, we're it's pretty certain which way the war is going to end when we get to the end of the Iliad, but we don't see how it happens, right? The walls of Troy are still all standing at the end of the Iliad. Um, then we start with the Aeneid, and then Troy has already fallen, and I really, I always wanted, maybe it's the completionist in the I always wanted the whole story. Like, can somebody please give me that full bit in the middle, like everything, how it happened? Um, 
and there are still many um uh yes the the, the horse tactic is definitely covered the horse tactic is definitely covered. Yes. So he will have learned about the, he will have, and we'll see there's another dude from the Aeneid, from the Trojan horse story of the Aeneid, whom we're going to see, I think pretty soon, um, uh, in the Malibolgia. But, um, anyway, yeah, yeah, no, that's totally covered. That is definitely. Um, but like one thing that is not is the incident with the Palladium, for instance, that nobody covers that like neither Virgil nor Homer really covers that um, and that's the next bit um, there they regret the guile that makes the dead Deodamia still lament Achilles and there for the palladium they pay um, so the palladium is okay like I said I'm probably going to screw up the story because they don't tell it. Neither Homer nor Virgil tells it. Um, but um, uh, anyway, they uh, the Palladium is a sacred artifact in Troy, which is stolen by Ulysses and Diomedes. They dress up and they sneak into Troy and they steal the Palladium, which is sacred to Athena, to Pallas Athena. That's why it's called the Palladium. Um, and they take it because it's like been prophesied that Troy will not fall so long as the Palladium is within it. And so they sneak in and they steal the Palladium prior to the fall of Troy. And after that, they do the whole Trojan horse thing. Um, so what was their sin? The horse's fraud? The palladium. They are paying for the palladium. They regret the guile. Guile? Fraud. Theft. Okay. Okay. Well, let's listen to what he has to say, USC's. You two who move as one within the flame, if I deserved of you while I still lived, if I deserved of you much or a little, when in the world I wrote my noble lines, do not move on. Let one of you retell where, having gone astray, he found his death. This is Virgil speaking, of course. If I deserved of you while I still lived, if I deserved of you much or a little, when in the world I wrote my noble lines, do not move on. Um, I'm not sure what Ulysses and Diomedes owe to Virgil, I gotta tell you. Um, I, I, I think if I were Ulysses, I might have some fine, kind of harsh words uh, for Virgil, to be totally honest with you. Um, and I can't imagine that Virgil's his number one fan either. <laughs> or that Diomedes, rather, is his number one fan. Um, but... He invokes them by what he wrote of them in his lines. Let one of you retell where, having gone astray, he found his death, which is an interesting thing. He doesn't say, tell me about your sins. He says, tell me where, having gone astray, you found your death. That you were astray is a given, right? I mean, everyone sees that. Everyone knows that. You were definitely astray. But having gone astray, how did you die? How did you die? Um, because that's not told. We don't know. Um, not even in Homer. 
do we know? Diomedes and Ulysses and Odysseus are still alive after the Trojan War. In fact, even uh, after the Odyssey, they're both still alive. Um, so, Carrie, you're right. He gave them eternal laurels in verse. Well, see, like, I guess it depends, right? Like, does somebody owe you something if you immortalize them as a villain? <laughs> I mean, they're still immortal, I guess, right? So that's something. Um, anyway, okay. The greater horn within that ancient flame began to sway and tremble, murmuring just like a fire that struggles in the wind. And then he waved his flame tip back and forth as if it were a tongue that tried to speak and flung toward us a voice. I love that. And flung toward us a voice that answered. When I sailed away from Circe, who'd beguiled me to stay more than a year there, near Gaeta, before Aeneas gave that place a name, neither my fondness for my son, nor pity for my old father, nor the love I owed Penelope, which would have gladdened her, was able to defeat in me the longing I had to gain experience of the world and of the vices and the worth of men. Okay. When I'd sailed, when I sailed away from Circe, which happened on his way home, we get references to the Odyssey throughout, especially the first six books um, of the Aeneid. Um, so, the travels of Ulysses that are that Homer covers are mostly alluded to. Not all of them, but not the whole story. But um, but like Circe makes it um, uh, because Aeneas. Uh, goes um, goes near there too. Um, okay. Um, when I sailed away from Circe, and when he sails away from Circe, is when he gets home. Neither my fondness for my son nor pity for my old father, nor the love I owed Penelope, which would have gladdened her, was able to defeat in me the longing I had to gain experience of the world and of the vices and the worth of men. He's talking about what happened after he went home. He doesn't say, I chose not to go home, right? He was not, none of those things, the fondness for his son, pity for his father, the love he owed to Penelope. None of that was able to defeat in me the longing I had to gain experience of the world and of the vices and the worth of men. He wanted to travel more. So he abandoned his family and set out again to gain experience of the world. Is this involved in his sin? And I and my companions were already old and slow when we approached the narrows where Hercules set up his boundary stones that men might heed and never reach beyond. Okay, so explicitly, this is the very end of his career. This is Ulysses is telling how he died, right? So he gets back home to Penelope. The Odyssey has happened. Right? Again, we don't know anything about the Odyssey, but we know that it happened. We know that he had this long journey and finally made it home. Um, again, that's in Virgil. Um, so we know that he got home, but we don't know what happened to him afterwards. Right. 
um, Ulysses explains. We approach the narrows where Hercules set up his boundary stones that men might heed and never reach beyond. The pillars of Hercules, of course, are the end, you know, the tip of Africa and Spain, um, the end of the Mediterranean, right? The end of the known world. Um, those were called the pillars of Hercules, and it was thought to be, um, it was thought to be warnings, exactly as he says here, that men might heed and never reach beyond. Exactly, yeah, Straits of Gibraltar. Of Gibraltar that's it. Um, uh, oh, that's a tough one, Jocelyn. Jocelyn says, if we're going to judge Ulysses about abandoning his family, uh, should we judge Aeneas, too, for leaving his wife uh, 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 to burn in Troy? Well, it, you know, look, it's easy to misplace people in a crowd. And he went back to look like it was he was awful upset. I hear you, Jocelyn. I do. Um, Aeneas is not exactly my role model as husband and father, I have to admit. But um uh, but nevertheless, it's not the same. I mean, he did try to take his whole family with him. It's, um, you know, and when he realized he lost his wife, then he did retrace his steps. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, this I believe to be a Dante creation, Aaron. This is, um, this is, uh, this is now Dante making stuff up. Upon my right, I had gone past Seville and on the left, already past Coeta. Brothers, I said, O oh, you who, having crossed a hundred thousand dangers, reach the west to this brief waking, to this brief waking time that is still left unto your senses, you must not deny experience of that which lies beyond the sun and of the world that is unpeopled. Consider well the seed that gave you birth. You were not made to live your lives as brutes, but to be followers of worth and knowledge." I spurred my comrades with this brief address to meet the journey with such eagerness that I could hardly then have held them back. And, and having turned our stern toward morning, we made wings out of our oars in a wild flight and always gained upon our left-hand side. Having turned our stern toward the morning, so they're facing mostly due west, right? They go through the Straits of Gibraltar, through the Pillars of Hercules, out of the Mediterranean, into the wild and unknown Atlantic, into the unpeopled world off the edge of the map. Right? Okay. Um, and... But they're always gaining on their left-hand side. So they're going mostly due west. Well... West by Southwest, <laughs> right? Uh, they're kind of drifting to the South as they go, right? They're always gaining on their left-hand side. Okay. His speech to y Gerald. Yeah, absolutely. This is where Tennyson's poem comes from. Um, Tennyson's poem, Ulysses, is absolutely drawn from this canto. Yes. Um, very explicitly drawn from this canto. Um, okay. His speech. O you who, having crossed a hundred thousand dangers, reach the west to this 
brief waking time that is still left unto your senses, you must not deny experience of that which lies beyond the sun and of the world that is unpeopled. You were not made to live your lives as brutes, but to be followers of worth and knowledge. Let's go seek knowledge. Let's go seek to be followers of worth and knowledge. Um, you were not made to live your lives as brutes. At night, I now could see the other pole and all its stars. The stars of ours had fallen and never rose above the plain of the ocean. So they're drifting more and more to the left, aren't they? They're not going west by southwest anymore. Now they're headed south. Um, they're seeing the South Pole and its stars. And the stars of ours, our pole, the North Pole, had fallen and never rose above the plain of ocean. They're really far south. Really far south. They can't see any of the northern constellations anymore. Five times the light beneath the moon had been rekindled, and as many times was spent since that hard passage faced our first attempt, when there before us rose a mountain, dark because of distance, and it seemed to me the highest mountain I had ever seen, and we were glad. But this soon turned to sorrow, for out of that new land a whirlwind rose and hammered at our ship against our bow. Three times it turned her round with all the waters, and at the fourth it lifted up the stern so that our prow plunged deep as pleased another until the sea again closed over us. Yes, David, exactly. You, uh, um, anybody who wants evidence that they did not think the world was flat in the Middle Ages, there you go. He knew full well the world was round. Um, that's why he knows as you get further and further south of the equator, you will come to the place where you cannot see the stars of the Northern Hemisphere anymore. Um, notice his reference to the poles uh, of the Earth. Um, yeah. Um, finally, they come upon a mountain, the highest mountain he had ever seen. And we were glad. But this soon turned to sorrow, for out of that new land a whirlwind rose and hammered at our ship against her bow. Three times it turned her round with all the waters, and at the fourth it lifted up the stern, so that our prow plunged deep as pleased another until the sea again closed over us. So they came to the forbidden shores of this incredibly high mountain, but before they, in their inappropriate journey beyond the boundaries set to mortals could land on the shores here beyond the edge of the world, beyond the end of the human realm. They are engulfed and swallowed and taken down. Um... I said in my little description on uh, YouTube and Twitch that uh, um, this is the passage of the Inferno that I, in my opinion, suspect that Tolkien would have been most interested in, which I also betrayed in my title on this slide, which I called Imram. Um, 
Tolkien told almost exactly this story, using almost exactly this imagery, um, in his poem called Imram. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, William, you're exact. You've exactly got it. Um, William says, "Are we to understand that they found Mount Purgatory?" Yes. Yes, that's what happened. That's what happened. Ulysses and his elderly companions arrived at Mount Purgatory, which is at the South Pole, FYI. Fewer penguins, more uh, souls of the dead. Um, and they died. They are swallowed up by the sea, not permitted to land, and they are taken down as pleased another. Um, I, Arthur, assume he means God, right? But he doesn't name him because he doesn't know him. He's Ulysses. What does he know about God, right? Um, but somebody else, right? Um, until the sea again closed over us. Um, yeah. Um, all right, Stephen says, so the Valar live in purgatory. Yeah, actually, yeah. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, in the Book of Lost Tales, um, Valinor was explicitly paradise, paradise in purgatory, um, just as, as Angband was explicitly hell. Uh, it was not called the Hells of Iron metaphorically, uh, in uh, the earliest days. Um, it was explicitly purgatory. Um, so, yes. Um, so do, do, I think, do I think that this passage directly influenced Tolkien? Yes, I absolutely do. There are very few passages in Dante that I feel really confident um, that Tolkien was directly borrowing from. This is definitely one. And I'd actually almost forgotten about it. Um, I mean, I knew it was there, but I haven't read this in a long time. And uh, so I'm really enjoying going through it, going through it with you guys. It's been years, though. And um, I had forgotten how close this was. Um, the vision of the mountain. Oh, man. Um, yeah, Stephen is wondering if uh, an other could be a reference to the unknown god Paul ref uh, referenced uh, on Mars Hill in uh, Acts chapter 15, 17, 15, 17, 17. Pretty sure it's 17, isn't it? Acts 17. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, yes, I do. I think that that's kind of the tone in which he's uh, referring there. Um, yeah, it is 17. Okay, Acts 17. Um yeah, yeah. Um, William says, so purgatory has always existed, even though it wasn't being used until Christ's death or resurrection. No, no, it was. It was. It was. Purgatory's, yes, purgatory's always been there. Um, uh, pur purgatory's always been there. Uh, yep. Since the fall, basically. Um, yeah, the thing that's new... Uh, since Jesus was the harrowing of hell, was the taking the um, the righteous souls who died prior to Jesus's resurrection, he 
brings them back up because um, they did go down. To, but um, but yeah, no purgatory. Purgatory's been there, right? Purgatory's been there. Um. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, Timothy, it does feel Farian, doesn't it? I mean, again, this it's hard. I, I can't even it's hard for me even to talk about this passage because like I can't unsee it. Like I can't. I am way too immersed in Tolkien's poetic descriptions of this exact scene uh, to distance myself from it. I mean, I'm finding myself constantly, Timothy, here thinking about um, thinking about the um, uh, thinking about the the about Valinor and Tiniquitil and Fairy. Like I can't I can't not think of that. Um, uh, so I have a hard time here, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we'll learn a little bit more about this later, but Aaron, no, you're right. I mean, yes, you're right that purgatory wouldn't have been in use because everybody who died went down to limbo uh, beforehand. So they wouldn't have been in purgatory before that time. Um, But Mount Purgatory was there. Um, You can tell because of what's on top. Spoilers, though. I don't want to spoil what's on top of Mount Purgatory uh, before we read it, in case we ever do. Um, Now, what's his sin? It's being punished here. That's my first question. My second question is, why do we get this story? On the one hand, it seems to me unlikely that his journey had too much to do with his the final location that Minos shipped him to, right? When he does get down here post-drowning, um, why did Minos send him to the eighth pouch of the eighth circle of hell? Um... I don't think it had anything to do with his journey. And the reason I don't think it had anything to do with his journey is because Diomedes didn't come on his journey, and he and Diomedes are joined at the hip. They're sh- they share a flame, right? Um, so their punishment, they are being joined in their punishment, which is how we were introduced to them at the beginning, right? Um, they're together in their flame. They grieve over the horse's fraud, Um they regret the guile, they're for the palladium they pay, right? These are the things that they're in on together, Diomedes and Ulysses. So presumably that's what got them not only both burning in a flame, but burning in the same flame. Which means the whole story here is extra? Why do we get this? Why do we get this? But anyway, let me go back to my first question. What? Did, what's what's their sin? What did they do? Fraud isn't good enough, right? Of course it's fraud, or they wouldn't be here, right? There's something fraudulent in what they did, but but yeah, of course. Um, why this? What is this pouch? Why this pouch? What's going on here? What's this about? Fraud, yes. Malice, yes. But again, those are the bigger categories. Not the specific thing. 
conspiracy to fraud. Well, you know. William, we can't rule out theft. We're back to theft again. I thought we did theft in the last one. Um, they did steal the palladium. Oh, wait. But that was sacrilege. Oh, shoot. So was the other guy in the last one. Oh, man. I don't know. Maybe the next guy will help us out. So let's try the second question. Why the story? Why the story? What? Why do we need to hear the story of Ulysses' last journey and his death? Yeah, Stephen, I'm exactly with you. I'm exactly with you. Um, you must not deny experience of that which lies beyond the sun and of the world that is unpeopled. You were not made to live your lives as brutes, but to be followers of worth and knowledge. Um, we approach the narrows where Hercules set up his boundary stones that men might heed and never reach beyond. You must not deny experience of that which lies beyond the sun. It's a little close to home, doesn't it? Um, there's someone else present who is journeying past the boundaries set for mortal people, right? Who is on a journey to see things never seen by other mortals before, right? Um, who is gonna end up at Mount Purgatory, <laughs> in fact, right? Um, indeed, where Ulysses was denied, right? Um, on the shores of Mount Purgatory, when Ulysses' ship goes down, uh, Dante's going to arrive at the shores of Mount Purgatory and will not be drowned, right? Um, and remember the curbing of the talent and the connection between him and the almost falling in, but except for he was holding on to the rock and all that stuff, right? Um, I cannot help but think that Ulysses' description of his last journey is directly parallel to Dante's own journey. Um, evokes the danger that he's in. The parallels between this moment and the Gerion moment, right? The, remember the um, Icarus and what's-his-face? Phaeton, right? The Phaeton and Icarus stuff um, with Gerion as he's sailing down into the circle of fraud. Um, the connections between fraud and allegory, between fraud and his Jerry on the effigy of fraud and his own verses. Um, I think he's very conscious of this journey that he's on and of the hubris that he is potentially guilty of in doing this at all. And here's Ulysses, who did the same thing, 
who's in hell. Not because he did that, though. He's telling the story of how he died. Um, and Tarlonio, I don't disagree with you that it doesn't seem like the worst death to experience, right? I mean, uh, you know, it's not a horrible way to go, the way he describes. Um, but um, but it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think that Dante is uh, um, is aware of sort of where he's of what like one way to one way to say this which I don't want to be ungenerous to Dante he is at least littering his own path through the underworld with examples of with cautionary examples for himself right um, cautionary tales of what can happen when you go too far down the road that he is going on, right? Um, he doesn't fall in to the circle. He doesn't fall off the bridge and fall into the circle because he was holding on to the rock, right? Um, there, but for the rock, goes he. Um, so what is there sin I don't know let's keep going the language of the fire I love this description this is the next canto the flame already was erect and silent it had no more to say it's Ulysses flame now it had left us with the permission of the gentle poet, when just behind it came another flame that drew our eyes to watch its tip because of the perplexing sound that it set f sent forth. Even as the Sicilian bull that first had bellowed with the cry, and this was just, of him who shaped it with his, in with his instruments, would always bellow with its victim's voice, so that, although that bull was only brass, it seemed as if it were pierced through by pain." So were the helpless words that from the first had found no path or exit from the flame transformed into the language of fire. Whoa. This is an amazing simile. So their attention is drawn to this other flame that's just kind of coming up from behind, right? Um, Ulysses is done. He's given his answer and He's left us with the permission of the gentle poet. So Virgil has told him something off stage, right? We're not told what it is. Virgil has told him something and said, it's okay, you can go. And another flame comes up and it draws their eyes. Why does it draw their eyes? Because of the tip of it is sending forth a perplexing sound. Helpless words that from the first had found no path or exit from the flame transformed into the language of fire. They don't What does that mean? So I'm you notice I'm ignoring the simile. I want to ignore the simile first and just figure out what he's saying, what he's describing here. The perplexing sound that it sent forth. What's perplexing about it? It seemed, okay, so were the helpless words 
helpless words that from the first had found no path or exit from the flame, transformed into the language of fire. The sinner inside the flame, the second flame, is speaking words, helpless words, and the words can't escape. The words can't escape the flame. They found no path or exit from the flame. They get transformed into the language of the fire. So this sound, this perplexing sound, is the tip of the flame is... I don't know what, how to describe it. It's flickering. It's moving, right? And this sound is coming forth, which they can't understand as words. The words that he's saying, which I guess they deduce he must be saying, are helpless words because there's no way for them to escape from the fire. But they get transformed into the language of fire itself. Okay, so that's really interesting. But now let's go to the simile. So what is this like? The helpless words that from the first had found no path or exit from the flame. The Sicilian bull that first had bellowed... So hang on. The Sicilian bull would always bellow with its victim's voice so that although the bull was brass, it seemed as if it were pierced through by pain. Um, this is a relatively obscure um, uh, mythological reference. Uh, the Sicilian bull was a torture device designed by a very cunning craftsman um, to please his cruel royal patron, right? Um, and how it worked is you put your victim inside this bowl which is made of brass and then you heat the brass bowl you you light fires underneath it and you heat it up and you burn alive inside the brass bowl your victim but here's the selling point right the selling point is when the victim inside the bowl is screaming in agony his screams, the inside of the bull is contrived in such a way, acoustically, um, is contrived in such a way. There's a, a, a sort of like a tube that emerges from its mouth, right? And the, the screams of agony of the victim echoing from inside the belly of the bull, by the time they echo their way through and emerge from the mouth of the bull, it sounds like a bull bellowing. It just sounds like, right? So it's like a party piece. It's a conversation piece, right? Um, so you can both torture your victims and amuse your guests at the same time, right? Um, it was a very cruel, designed, explained to be explicitly a very cruel device of torture, Um uh, by a very, um, uh, very horrible king. But wait, there's more. Also, the story says, as he says here in the parenthetical, the Sicilian bull that first had bellowed with the cry, and this was just, 
of him who shaped it with his instruments. So the very clever smith who made the Sicilian bull was the first one put into the bull and burned to death inside it. That's part of the story. And that's like the allegorical kicker, right? That's like what made the story of the Sicilian bull into a favorite moral epigram, right? Um, Because, you know, um, the cruelty, uh, uh, you know, redounds upon the one who... um, um, the the one who redounds upon the uh, um, the 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 inventor of the cruelty, right? This was just. It was just that the one who had shaped this bull, the one who conceived this horrible thing, should have been the first one to be uh, to be executed in it. Um, okay. Now. That's what the words which found no path or exit from the flame but were transformed into the language of fire. It was like that. So just as the screams of agony from inside the Sicilian bull were transformed into the language of cows, which sounded like a bull bellowing, So the helpless words of the sinner inside this flame are transformed into the language of fire itself, right? Like the fire that was heating the Sicilian bull. And so the, well, so the circle of death continues, right? Um, Okay, so it's like that. His words, it's not screams transformed into bellowing. It's words transformed into a perplexing sound. The sound that fire makes. And I'm not sure what sound it is. Um, like hissing, maybe? Like hissing and uh, uh, sputtering sound that flames sometimes make? Um, yeah, Carrie, I know what you mean. That so, like sometimes when... Um, uh, a pocket of pitch inside a log in a campfire releases a wavering scream. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, <clears throat> yeah, maybe it's like that. Maybe it's like that. Um, I'm not really sure exactly uh, um, what sound he's describing there, which is odd, come to think of it, because that's kind of what <laughs> what an epic simile is supposed to do. Right. Help me to picture that better. But I can't picture that better. I don't understand exactly what he's suggesting there. So that's interesting by itself, isn't it? That the epic simile that he is uh, using to describe this is not to help us picture it better, but rather is meant to. um, It's not meant to help us picture it better. Instead, it is meant to. um, What? What? What is it meant to do? What does it do? Help us to imagine the situation better? Now, here's the kicker. If the sinner is like the tortured victim of the Sicilian bull, and the flame is therefore like the bull, itself. Who is like 
him who shaped it with his instrument, with his with his instruments. It kind of sounds to me like him who almost face planted in this pouch to begin with, doesn't it? Um, who shaped this? Dante shaped this. Mister, I'm curbing my talent. Shaped this, right? Uh, with the talent that he doesn't want to lead him away from the path of virtue. Um, uh, Dante is the one who shaped this, both the simile and the torture itself that he's describing, right? Um, and it is just that he who shaped it with his instruments should be the one to bellow within the Sicilian bull. Um, okay, who is this dude? But after they had found their way up toward the tip, the words, I assume, and given it that movement which the tongue had given them along their passage, we heard... O you to whom I turn my voice, who only now were talking Lombard, saying, Now you may leave, I'll not provoke more speech. Though I have come perhaps a little late, may it not trouble you to stop and speak with me? See how I stay, and I am burning. If you have fallen into this blind world but recently, out of the sweet Italian country from which I carry all my guilt, do tell me if the Romagnoles have peace or war. I was from there, the hills between Urbino and the ridge where Tiber springs. See what we just got? We just got what Virgil said to Ulysses. Now you may leave, I'll not provoke more speech. So Dante doesn't tell us what Virgil said to Ulysses after the fact. This dude, the, the language of fire... So, first, the words, the helpless words, found no path or exit from the flame are transformed into the language of fire. All we're hearing is, what, spitting and hissing? Probably. But after they had found their way, that the words worked their way up to the tip of the flames, and given it that movement which the tongue had given them along their passage. So the tip of the flame moves like a tongue and speaks the words of this guy. So now the flame is becoming his, well, not spokesperson, his instrument, his, I don't even know what. Um... <laughs> Is there a word for that? His synthetic tongue? Um, uh, his vicarious tongue? Um, and Stephen, if we weren't... I know you mentioned this a long time ago. Um, if uh, if we weren't thinking about Pentecost and the tongues of flame before, we absolutely should be thinking about them now, right? Um, and arguably, we should have been thinking about them, as you were suggesting, much earlier on. I think Timothy was talking about that, too. Um Think, thinking about speaking in tongues, right? Yeah, Timothy, exactly. Um, tongues of flame. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
So yes, the weird sound comes from the body of flame and the intelligible words come from the tip of the flame, which is moving like the, a tongue. I think so. I think so. Um, and he, it, the flame, tip, tongue, addresses Virgil, who's a Lombard, right? He's from Mantua. Um, says, hey, 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 you are... You're speaking Lombard just now, right? I heard you. You said now you may leave. I'll not provoke more speech. Why do we get the words of Virgil to Ulysses so indirectly as this? Why do we... Um, oh, and by the way, this image that I've been sitting in front of for like two weeks now, this is the woodcutting of uh, this. They're looking just down at the flames. Um, this is a terrible image. I totally disagree with this image, right? Dante, look at Dante. This, is, this one's Dante. You can tell by his nose, right? This one's Dante. Look at him, bashfully standing back there, discreetly looking down, right? He's supposed to be leaning over and almost falling in. That guy looks in no danger of falling in, right? And uh, yeah, no, I, I, that's, that's terrible. I strongly disagree with that image. Um, anyway. Um, so why is it that this dude, the fire-tongued dude, gives us the words of Virgil to Ulysses? I don't know. I find that kind of fascinating. Um, see how I stay. And I am burning. Won't hurt you to stay, will it? If you have fallen into this blind world but recently... Are you new here? You must be new here, right? You've fallen into the sweet Italian country from which I carry all my guilt. And I, I, I'm, I'm from Italy too, right? That's where I did all my guilty things. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what's going on up there. Okay. After the flame in customary fashion had roared a while, it moved its pointed tip this side and that, and then set free its breath, still speaking that way. So he asks him to tell his story, right? Virgil asks him to tell his story. And then it roars a while, and then set free this breath. There so the roaring seems to be the language of the flame, right? It's almost like we're hearing a translation. First it speaks in fire talk, and then the tip, the pointed tip, translates for us, right? Into Italian, presumably. Um, and he says, If I thought my reply were meant for one who could ever return into the world, this flame would stir no more. And yet, since none, if what I hear is true ever returned alive from this abyss, then without fear of, fa of facing infamy, I will answer you. Well, fortunately, there is no chance of you, of anybody who can hear me going back to the world of the living and uh, blabbing about this, so I don't mind. Where so many of the sinners we have met are keen to have their names remembered and their stories retold, this guy is not, right? This guy is going to spill some beans that he would not want to share, and um, he's only doing it 
because he, as he explains, is so convinced that nobody could possibly take his words back to the living world. So it's a good thing he's safe from that. Um, What does his overconfidence say? What is the thrust of this irony? But yet indeed one has come who can return into the world. That which you believe impossible is possible because of the one who is with us, because there is an Italian. And of course, also, ironically, Virgil isn't who he thinks he is, right? Virgil lived and died long before this guy did. Right. And yet he's like, hey, do you have uh, current? Are you familiar with current events in Italy? Can you can you um, can you update me? Ironically, he's asking Virgil, right, for a recent update about the situation in Italy, um, when in fact there is indeed a contemporary Italian present who can tell him, um, but who is also um in fact, alive and able to bring his infamy back into the living world. I'll keep going. I was a man of arms, then wore the cord, that is, he became a Franciscan friar, believing that so girt I made amends. And surely what I thought would have been true had not the highest priest, may he be damned. Hey, don't worry. You got that taken care of. The Pope, of course, he's talking about. Dante's favorite Pope, I believe, um, whom we've already been told is likely to be damned. Um, made me fall back into my former sins. Made me. Tied me up and forced me to go back into my former sins. And how and why? I'd have you hear from me. While I still had the form of bones and flesh my mother gave to me, my deeds were not those of the lion, but those of the fox. The wiles and secret ways, I knew them all, and so employed their arts that my renown had reached the very boundaries of earth. Oh, well, that's good. So he got really famous. That's a good thing. Right? We're supposed to believe that's a good thing. But when I saw myself come to that part of life when it is fitting for all men to lower sails and gather in their ropes, what once had been my joy was now dejection. Repenting and confessing, I became a friar, and poor me, it would have helped. Poor me. That's this guy's epitaph, for sure. Exactly, Arthur. The Pope made me do it, right? I mean, like, how that's like the oldest story in the book, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Timothy, I agree. This circle fo focuses so much on speech and language and tongues. Um, I definitely think that's got to have something to do with the sin, right? It's just got to. Um these are definitely people who are sinning with words in some way or other, right? But just as Constantine on Mount Soract to cure his leprosy sought out Sylvester, so this one, that is, remember, the Pope, sought me out as his instructor to ease the fever of his arrogance. He asked me to give counsel. I was silent. His words had seemed to me delirious. And then he said, Your heart must not mistrust. I now absolve you in advance. Teach me to batter Penestrino to the ground. You surely know that I possess the power to unlock and lock to lock and unlock heaven, for the keys my predecessor did not prize are two. Then his grave arguments compelled me so, my silence seemed a worse offense than my speech. 
And I said, Since you cleanse me of the sin that I must now fall into, Father, I know. Sorry, since, that I must fall into, Father, no, long promises and very brief fulfillments will bring a victory to your high throne. Okay, so again, keep in mind this was not his fault, right? I mean, I hope that none of you are thinking that this guy is responsible for his sin. And yet, nevertheless, despite his obvious and manifest innocence, we can still see his sin, right? He asked me to give counsel. But then the Pope absolves him in advance, right? I've, I now absolve you in advance. I possess the power to lock and unlock heaven. Hey, he's the Pope. He possesses the keys to lock and unlock. Whatever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, right? That's what he's talking about there. So, yep, the Pope holds the keys of St. Peter, so absolutely. And the Pope's grave arguments compelled him, this poor guy. So he gave his counsel. He gave his advice. So what was the sin? What was the sin? Well, one more. He dies. The dude. Fire tongue dude dies. Then Francis came. So St. Francis comes to collect him. Isn't that nice? Nice to see St. Francis paying personal attention to each one of the devotees of the order that he founded. Then Francis came as soon as I was dead for me. But one of the black cherubim told him, Don't bear him off. Do not cheat me. He must come down among my menials. The counsel that he gave was fraudulent. Since then I've kept close track to snatch his scalp. One can't absolve a man who's not repented. And no one can repent and will at once. The law of contradiction won't allow it. Oh, miserable me, for how I started when he took hold of me and said, Perhaps you did not think I was a logician. He carried me to Minos, and that monster twisted his tail eight times around his hide, and then, when he had bit it in great anger, announced, This one is for the thieving fire, for which and where, you see, I now am lost. And in this garb I move in bitterness. The counsel that he gave was fraudulent. Um, I have often heard this pouch called the pouch of the fraudulent counselors. What does that mean? His counsel wasn't fraudulent. I mean, not in a simple sense. He gave good advice. He shouldn't have done it was advice. He gave counsel about how to accomplish a wicked act, right? So it was it was bad counsel. It was wrong counsel. He was sinning in giving it, in conspiring with the Pope to perform a wicked deed, to accept the Pope's alleged crooked offer of... Absolution in advance. By the way, the sign of a questionable pope. 
offering absolution in advance. Um, that doesn't fly. You can't absolve somebody in advance. Of the, you, can't ab, you can't absolve someone in advance, nor is there any point in saying, if you find someone praying a prayer that says, Lord, please forgive me for that which I am about to do. Talk about your obviously unconvincing confessions, right? Um, uh, you may be asking for forgiveness, but you obviously aren't repenting of it because you're going to still go on. You can't repent of a thing um, and uh, will to do the thing at exactly the same time like that. Like it's if you. Yeah, no, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, in what sense was he a fraudulent counselor? Wherein lies the fraud of his actions? How was he fraudulent? And of course, what about Minos? Um, I called this slide a glimpse into the process because this is the first time we get a first person. I mean, the suicide kind of told us about getting flung down into the seventh circle and landing and growing as a tree. But um, we get dialogue from Minos. We get St. Francis and the demon debating about his soul at the hour of his death. That is good stuff right here, right? Um, Minos says this one is for the thieving fire. The thieving fire. What does that mean? The fire is thieving? The fire steals? It's surely not the fire for those who do steal, but of course now I'm thinking about the Palladian. Ulysses and Diomedes did steal the thing. So, theft, sure, but this guy didn't thieve. Right? Um... Yeah, he. Meryl and I agree with you. And again, I come back to uh, Timothy's point, Timothy on YouTube's point. It seems to be all about words, words and tongues and fire and the fire, even as being the kind of intermediary between the words and the tongues. Remembering, Stephen, as you were pointing out, the flames at Pentecost, the Flame, the tongues of flame which descended upon the heads of the apostles in Acts chapter 2. Um, and when, it, when they did, everyone who heard the apostles speak heard them speak in their own languages. So the flames were again like the intermediary between the speech and the hearing. Like the flame here is being the intermediary between the words that he says. First they hear the spluttering, which is what his words have become. Right until the flame can speak them, and now they can understand them. And I, but ironically, what the flame has said was, "Hey, you're speaking my language." Right, um, which again reminds us of Pentecost, except Virgil is actually from not too far away from where um, from where this guy was from. Um, I don't know, but it's late. Next time, I will begin by asking, so what was their sin again? The burning flame people? 
what patterns can we see? What exactly does this add up to? And isn't it interesting, by the way, how cagey Dante has become about this? Even at the beginning of the Malabogia, he was quite explicit, like with the seducers and panderers, right, about, you know, who they were and what their sins were. We've been forced to guess and to put some effort into guessing. Again, most uh, schematics that I've seen modern editors draw, they usually label this casually, the pouch of the fraudulent counselors. But again, I see where they get that, right? Um, but that's not even a thing that makes... It, who was Ulysses defrauding by his counsel, right? Um, that's not exactly... I mean, a fraudulent counselor sounds to me like somebody who gives fake advice. Right? Someone who deceives you, who claims to be giving you good counsel, but is deceiving you when they're doing that. And yet, that's not what this guy did. Clearly not what this guy did. Anyway, we'll see. Next time, I will come back and I will ask, I will start with that question. We'll reflect on these guys a little bit, and then we'll move on to Canto 28. So make sure you read 28 and 29 for next time. We'll see if we can do two, uh, two Cantos again. Thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight. I will see you guys again next week. Bye now.